Our Father and our God, we bow before You with thankful hearts. For we know that without Christ, we would have no desire to gather together to worship You in truth and spirit. Our sins would not be forgiven and we would, de- we would be down forever. So we give You all the praise for what You have done in our lives in giving us a new heart that desires to worship You in truth and spirit. And knowing, Father, that You have created us for the very purpose of worship. And we pray, Father, that our worship this morning has thus far been acceptable to You. And now as we come to Your Word, Father, we pray that You might send Your Spirit and power to give us understanding, to bring conviction of sin, to bring about sanctification in our life. We thank You, Father, for not leaving us to our own ignorance, but giving us the very Word of God so that we might understand what Your will is, so that we might understand Your church and the officers of Your church. And we pray, Father, that as we begin this series today on the office of eldership, that You would give us knowledge and wisdom and bring to our minds that which we have studied in the past, as well as that which we do not know, Father, that we might learn. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to work in our midst to accomplish that which is pleasing to you. We pray for our sister churches throughout the world, that as the gospel is preached, that many would come into your kingdom. We pray for those that are here this day without Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. We pray for your children, that you would grow them in grace so that they might be used of you to accomplish the work that you have for them to do. We thank you, Father, that we can come to you in our times of need, knowing that you care for us more than we even realize, and knowing that you are working all things out according to your purpose, and that you have a plan for us, and that you will bring that plan about in our life so that we might bring honor and glory to your name. Pray for those that are unable to be with us. You know their reasons and need. We pray that you would minister to those in need of healing in their body, that you would be pleased to restore their health so that they might continue to be used in your kingdom work. Those that you choose to take from this world, we pray that you comfort them. We Think especially of Miss Linda and pray that your healing hand would comfort her as only you can. That you would prepare her, Father, for glory and that we would be faithful to minister to her. We pray for others, Father. We pray for those who have lost loved ones. I think of Brother Rusty Bolin and the loss of his sister-in-law. I pray that you would comfort that family during this time of sorrow. Others, Father, that you know of, accomplish your will in their lives. Be with those that are away, bring them back to us, and we pray especially for those that would not be gathered today because of their lack of concern for their own spiritual needs. Work in their life, bring about renewal and repentance and commitment. All of this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we will read verses 1 through 7. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is a faithful saying, If a man desires the position of bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his household well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how can he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he falls into the same condemnation as the devil." Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This week, Brother Rusty, who many of you know, sent me a text, and in that text, it was a cartoon article, and it says, this individual is introducing the guest speaker of the day. He says, before the guest speaker, Bradman, comes to the pulpit, we are required to inform you that his preaching may cause anxiety, panic attacks, and sudden impulse resulting in bodily harm. Has been known to cause anger, irritable, swelling of the hands and legs, and most common side effect are blurry vision, dry mouth, and weight gain and should not be endured if you are taking any high blood pressure medicine. Now let me heartily welcome Reverend Bradman. Well, I'm hoping that my sermons do not cause that to you this morning as we begin to look at the subject of eldership and my responsibility to you as a pastor. Now, 12 years ago, matter of fact, I didn't realize it until I went back and looked, 12 years ago, this very week, I thought to myself, well, that's providential. The elders of Grace Baptist Church wrote a letter. And I want to use the context of this particular letter that was written to introduce this series of sermons that we are going to look at pertaining to eldership. To remind you as a church of the qualifications and work of an elder. Now, one of the reasons for this is for us as a church to begin to pray and seek God's man to come alongside me as co-pastor. I'm not getting any younger. Matter of fact, my plans, Lord willing, is in about three years that I will no longer be the primary teacher and preacher and someone else will be. Now, of course, that doesn't mean, as I mentioned, some of you asked, I've mentioned to you, that doesn't mean you're going to get rid of me. I'm going to still be hanging around. Matter of fact, uh, Fonzo and Bunny both said I must preach their funerals. I keep telling them, I said, you may live longer than me. So I'll still be around to uh, do some things like that. But between now and then, there are some things that must be decided about eldership, which we'll be addressing in these sermons that I will be proclaiming. 
Most of them have been addressed in the past. They're stated in our Constitution and bylaws. There have been times when there was confusion about eldership in our church in the early days. And this is one reason why years later this particular letter was written. Uh, many men members, of course, have been added to our church over the past years. And uh, you are not probably up to date with what our Constitution and bylaws say, even though you have a copy of that, and I encourage you to read that. So because of all those reasons, I want to address eldership again and make some very important statements pertaining to it to make sure everyone understands Grace Baptist Church understanding of eldership and how important it is to have what we call a biblical eldership because you must have a biblical eldership to have a biblical church. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Now of course for most of the 23 plus years we have been a church, we have had a plurality of elders, which has been a great benefit to me as pastor. Now, of course, since Pastor Tiago went to Portugal, I have been, you could say in one sense, the Lone Ranger. Now, of course, I want you to know and assure you that I believe in a plurality of elders, and that is the best for a church, especially a church our size. Now, in one sense, we must say that we have continued to have a plurality of elders. We've had Howe and Persant and Dirt, who have been a tremendous blessing to Grace Baptist Church. Uh, they are studying for full-time ministry, and that has helped them, of course, prepare for future eldership themselves. And also, I'm very thankful to our deacons who have been willing to step up and carry the load as well in helping particular areas of the role of eldership. So we haven't had a tremendous amount of pressure put on this pastor because there has been much help from these men, and I appreciate it immensely. Now, with that said, uh, listen to this letter, of course, uh, this is going to be kind of unusual, I know. I haven't done this as far as I can remember in my ministry, but I think it's a good thing to do, and I will be stopping and, and commenting on some of the things that are stated in the letter. And remember, this is an introduction to the series of sermons that we will be looking at. Uh, the majority of the information that will be stated in this letter is from three different books primarily, as well as other books, but primarily from three books, J. Adams' book, Shepherding God's Flock, uh, John MacArthur's book, Shepherdology, and Alexander Strauss' Biblical Eldership. And uh, if you are studying for the ministry, I'd encourage you to have all three of those books in your library. So let me begin. We, the elders of Grace Baptist Church, realize that we need to address the office of eldership since some issues have arisen over the role of church officers. We believe that we need to do this to preserve the unity of the body and move forward in ministry in a manner pleasing to God and for His glory. Since there seems to be a misunderstanding about the office of elder pastor, we have included some of the following information for you to read and consider carefully so that we can discuss this matter. 
Now let me state that as mentioned, this was written 12 years ago uh, this week. Pastor Bill Lash and myself wrote the letter. He was a co-pastor with me at that particular time. And we realized that there were some issues that needed to be addressed concerning the role of the elder and the role of the deacon. Uh, when this church, Grace Baptist Church, was established, constituted, there was a particular document that we adopted, and it really and truly did not represent what we thought the scriptures represented. And then that led to some problems. Uh, sad to say, we even had a group of members early on. We were only like five years old as a church. Had a group of members leave because of that particular situation. So we saw a need that we needed to examine our constitution and bylaws and seek to be more in line with what the scriptures taught and amended our constitution time and time again. Eventually, uh, in 2013, we decided to just chunk that particular constitution and bylaws and start all over. So um, 10 years ago, we actually adopted a brand new constitution and bylaws. Continue. Uh, if there is some misunderstanding about the office of elder or the constitution and bylaws set out a role of elder, it states, the elder shall oversee the ministry and the resources of the church. In keeping with the principles set forth, and let me encourage you to write down these passages and you can go back and read them because we'll be looking at these passages throughout the next uh, three or four weeks. Acts 6, 1 through 6, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. The elders shall devote their time to prayer, the ministry of the word, by teaching, encouraging sound doctrine, and shepherding God's flock. It also states the elders shall take particular responsibility to oversee the work of the deacons, and appoint church agents and committees, equip their membership for the work of ministry. Now again, as stated in this letter, it's the responsibility of the elder to oversee the work of the deacons. In most churches, the deacon functions more like the elder instead of being servants of the church. And of course, this has caused serious problems in many churches. One reason is because these men in these churches see their duty as, you could say, rulers of the church, uh, owners of the church, even to the point to where they seek to control the pastor in these churches. Um, and they even decide what will take place in the church, even to the point of if they get ready, they're the ones that think it's their duty to fire the pastor and hire a new pastor. And of course, that is unbiblical. Of course, we haven't had that problem in our church, but that does happen in a number of churches. Now, as the letter states, the New Testament offers more instruction regarding the elder 
than on many other important church subjects. This duty, or these duties, are laid out in several places. They are shepherds to their flock. Set an example, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. And just like shepherds, they are to feed the flock. Acts 20, 28. To work hard among and to reprove when necessary. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. And to care for the spiritual and physical needs of the church members. James 5, 13 through 18. Elders are considered rulers over their flock. 1 Timothy 5.17 and 1 Thessalonians 5.12. And their judgment is to be submitted to. Hebrews 13.17. Not so that they can be lords over God's heritage. 1 Peter 5.3. But because they are given to give account to God for their spiritual character of their church. Hebrews 13, 17. Let me pause there a minute. See, there's, there's the one that the pastor has to answer to. Not to the deacons. The pastor has to answer to God. And I'm much more fearful than God than I am the deacons. I'm not fearful of our deacons here anyway, but much more fearful of God than any deacon of any church that I've ever served. And that's who I have to give an account to, and that's who all elders have to give an account to. Elders must be apt to teach, preach, sound doctrine, rebuke those who are teaching error, so that false teaching does not creep into the church. Again, let me add, that happens so often today, and I'm thankful that it doesn't happen in our church. But so many churches have allowed false teaching to creep in. 1 Timothy 5.17 and Titus 1.9-13. To this end, they are also to train and appoint others. So we see that it's the responsibility of the pastor to train and appoint others. Acts 14.23, 1 Timothy 4.14, and Titus 1.5. Above all, the elder is to serve with humility, remembering that their position is a picture of Christ as the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5, 4. So that must be an elder's main example, Christ as the chief shepherd. Now as the apostolic era came to a close, the office of elder, er, elder emerged as the highest level of local church leadership. Thus, it brings a great amount of responsibility. There was no higher court to appeal to, no greater resource to understand the mind and heart of God as revealed in Scripture with regard to issues in the church. The primary responsibility of an elder is to serve as a manager and caretaker of the church, 1 Timothy 3, 5. That involves a number of specific duties. As spiritual overseer of the flock, elders are to determine church policy, Acts 15, 22. Now, most churches, who determine church policy? Committees. Well, that's not what the Scripture teaches. 
Church policy must be determined by the elders. Also, oversee the church, Acts 20, 28. Ordain others, 1 Timothy 4, 4. Rule, teach, and preach, 1 Timothy 5, 17. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. 1 Timothy 3, 2. Exhort and refute, Titus 1, 9. And act as shepherds, setting an example for all, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. Those responsibilities put elders at the core of the New Testament work because of its heritage of the democratic value and its long history of congregational church government, modern American evangelicalism often views the concept of elder rule with suspicion. The clear teaching of Scripture demonstrates that biblical norm of church leadership is a plurality of God's ordained elders. And only by following the biblical example will the church maximize its fruitfulness to the glory of God. Now let me add here that some of us, older ones, were raised in church that did not have a plurality of elders. As a matter of fact, we didn't even know what the word elder meant. We thought that was a completely different individual than pastor. We, we didn't realize that pastor and elder were synonymous to one another. And we thought, well, that's those other denominations that have elders. But us as Baptists, we have a pastor. Also, we believe that congregational rule was the way to function as a church. We didn't understand elder rule and the connection with congregational rule. And this is why there were, are so many Baptist churches. I mean, when you have complete congregational rule, it often leads to what? Church splits. I mean... Baptist churches are not really that evangelistic in starting new churches. It's just that people can't get along with one another, so therefore they split and they start a new church. I mean, in my home county, which is called the Free State of Jones, now that goes all the way back to the war between the states, I remember they used to brag at our associational meetings how many Baptist churches we had in our county. At that time, there were over 50 Baptist churches in that one county. But again, the reason we had so many Baptist churches in Jones County is because the people simply couldn't get along with one another. I know of at least two churches, and there's probably more, you can stand on the front porch of one and look out and see the other Baptist church that used to be in that one and they split and just moved right down the street. Now, that is not a very good witness to the world. And that's another reason why instead of having simply congregational rule, but elder rule connected with congregational rule, and there must be what we would call a balance and a check means in that. 
From the above information, it is clear that elders do much more than pray and teach. He is overseer of all of the work of ministry. The deacons are servants of the church under the authority of the elders to help them in whatever way the elders deem best for the church. The elders are the ones who answer questions to God in how the local church is governed. They must give an account for all that takes place. The word about the various terms, a word about the various terms of the office of elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd, and bishop. These are all synonymous terms. They all refer to one individual. They're not referring to a hierarchy, as some denomination seeks to do, that you have a bishop over all the churches, and then you have your pastors, and then you have your elders under your pastor. Now, first of all, the elder, the term elder, is an Old Testament term. The primary meaning was one who is set apart for leadership much like a senate in Israel. They were charged with the responsibility of judging the people. If you remember, back when Moses was dealing with people and had problems, his father-in-law called him and said, Now Moses, you're just going to completely wear yourself out. What you need to do is appoint men to hear the cases, and then when they need to come to you a more serious case that you need to settle, they'll bring them to you. But let other men deal with those other issues. And what did he do? Well, they appointed what is called elders at that particular time. So therefore, whatever way the elders deem best for the church, the elders are ones who are to answer to God and must give an account. And that's what Moses had to do. He had to answer to God for the people of Israel. They were charged with the responsibility of judging the people. They were the decision makers, applying wisdom to the lives of the people in resolving conflict, giving direction, and generally overseeing the details of the orderly society. In Ezra, they were the leaders in charge of rebuilding the temple after exile. In the New Testament, the term presbyteros was very familiar being used 28 times to refer to a group of ex-official spiritual leaders of Israel. In every instant, it refers to recognized spiritual leaders in Israel. The New Testament church was initially Jewish, so it would naturally have the concept of elder rule, which was adopted by the early church. Elder was the only commonly used term for leadership that was free from the reference of either the monarchy or priesthood. In Acts, in the epistles, it is used 20 times to refer to the unique group of leaders in the church. From the beginning, it is clear that a group of mature spiritual leaders were to have responsibility for the church. The church at Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas at that time, 
to the elders of Jerusalem with a gift to distribute to the needy brethren in Judea. Elders played a dominant role in the council at Jerusalem, Acts 15. Obviously, they were very influential in the foundation life of the early church, 1 Peter 5, 1-2, which states, The elder who are among you, elders who are among you, I exhort. I am a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Now the word... Episcopos, which is bishop, means overseer or guardian. And it's used five times in the New Testament. Episcopos, bishop, is the secular Greek culture equated with the historical Hebrew idea of elder. So in other words, the word elder in the Old Testament translated over into the New Testament would be Episcopos, which would mean bishop. Bishops were those appointed by the emperors to lead captured and newly founded city-state. The bishop was responsible to the emperor. Oversight was delegated to him. He functioned as a commissioner regulating the affairs of the new colony. So you see that the word was, in other words, a public word, a word that was used in politics, a word that was used in government, which came into the church. The term suggests two ideas to the first century Greek mind. First, responsibility to be a super superior power. Second, an introduction to a new order of things. The Gentile converts would have immediately understood this concept. They understood it. Why? Because it was used quite often in the regular arena of conversation outside the church. Biblically, there's no difference in the role of elder bishop. The two terms refer to the same group of leaders. Episcopos, bishop, emphasizes the function. Presbyteros, the character. The function, the character of the person. So the term elder emphasizes who the man is, and the term bishop emphasizes what a man does. The term pastor deals with how he is to minister. Paul says the work of the Episcopos, bishop, is to take care of the church. The clear implication is that the bishop elder, primary responsibility is to be a caretaker of the church. And we all understand what a caretaker is. So he's to be the caretaker of the church. Now, this involves a number of specific duties that are mentioned in Scripture. 
Perhaps the most obvious is the function of overseeing the affairs of the local church. 1 Timothy 5.17 states, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now, rule is in this particular verse there, the elders rule, is pro, proistomy which is used to speak of an elder's responsibility. And it's used four times in 1 Timothy, once in 1 Thessalonians, and once in Romans. Ruling is listed as a spiritual gift. It literally means to stand first. And it speaks of the duty of generally giving oversight for all elders. And the elders who rule in the church are not subject to any higher earthly authority outside the local assembly. And of course, we as Baptists believe that each church is to be a local assembly. It is the local body of Christ. And their authority over the church is not by force, but by precept and example. In 1 Timothy... 3, 1 through 5, which we read just a moment ago, proven mandatorial ability is set forth promptly as a crucial qualification for selecting overseers' elders. Without this ability, Paul says, the minister cannot properly carry out the work of an overseer, which includes taking managerial care of the church. In verse 4 and 5, we can see, he says, verse 4, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? First, the management gift and the skills are necessary for discharging the ministerial duties joined by God. In other words, he must be able to manage well. Second, the manager is necessary part of his duty. It is part of overseeing the work. Third, the church suffers when such management fails to come forth. The church needs the managerial care. Now, one of the most worldly and unchristian ways of dishonoring God is by the carelessness, the sloppiness, the confusing manner in which this work is carried out in some churches. Anything pursued in an unbiblical manner, anything not under the spirit controlled, will become fleshly whether tightly organized or managed. And so many churches have become, what we would say, having CEOs to lead it. Well, that's not what the Scripture is talking about. You can do everything right and it still not be led by the Spirit. The Spirit is neither bound by organizations as some think, nor is He unable to work in freer contexts. He sovereignly works when and where and how the Spirit pleases. 
while he may choose to break out beyond our plans and programs, the Spirit thereby does not call us to abandon or to become careless about our planning and our leadership. When we, are not, on, when we not only plan, but also submit our plans to the Spirit, then we do well. It is of utmost necessity to recognize at the outset that good leadership, planning, and management in the church of Christ are not merely tolerated or permitted, but they are required and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. To put it briefly, biblical administration is spiritual administration. It cannot be denied that the Holy Spirit freely uses human leadership guided by His Word as the principal means of achieving His purpose. Spiritual leadership that He empowers is to carry out God's work. Planning is real work of oversight. Indeed, It is so bound up with preaching, with evangelism, and pastoral care that it can never be separated from them. The two sides go together. Leadership is a part of work. Planning is a part of work. Management is a part of work of the elder and minister. If the work is biblical, spiritually motivated, It is spiritual work. Far from hampering the proclamation of the gospel, such work becomes the vehicle to be able to facilitate the proclamation of the gospel. The two go hand in hand together, ordinarily under normal circumstances. There will be little or no success in preaching, evangelism, counseling without proper planning, structure, and leadership. A minister needs to see that his designated task is in its entirely shepherd-oriented. The great shepherd of the sheep did not call him to some abstract calling shepherding, but to actual earthly task of working with wandering, sick, wounded sheep. Shepherding is always concrete. That is to say, it involves all of the problems of caring for the sheep. And let me pause here. In the 40 years that I have pastored, I have come to realize that personally. Shepherding sheep, wandering sheep, sick sheep, wounded sheep, involving a lot of problems. Just because we are saved by grace doesn't mean we no longer have any problems. Matter of fact, in one sense, when we are saved by grace, that's when our real problems begin. Because that's when the real battle begins with the devil. Every pastor must become deeply committed to the task of organizing, equipping, and leading a well-disciplined flock of God's people in Christ's service. He must become committed to it as spiritual task. 
When he is so committed, he will not look upon church management as dull, burdensome, and necessity evil, but rather as vital, exciting, and challenging part of the total task for which he has been chosen by Christ. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in one message, when we are chosen by Christ, then we don't simply walk away from our responsibility as many pastors do. I think I mentioned that last week. 1,500 pastors every month walk away from being a pastor. My question is, were they chosen by Christ to be a pastor? If you're chosen by Christ to be a pastor, then He will give you the ability to deal with the problem so that you don't walk away from that which God has called you to do. Now that doesn't mean there aren't times that you want to walk away, but what did I preach on last week? I preached on do not grow weary in doing well. There are times you grow weary, but at the same time you are not to be overcome by that weariness. Elders are the spiritual overseers of the flock. They are to determine church policy. I've already mentioned that. Oversee, rule, teach, preach, exhort, refute, and act as shepherds, setting forth an example to all. Those responsibilities put elders at the core of the New Testament church work. They are to select other men to handle lesser matters. Acts 6. Of course, that's where the people in the church, the widows, Felt like they were being overlooked. So what did the apostles do? They appointed six men to be deacons to wait on the tables, to be the servants, to take care of the problems. Elders are called and appointed by God, confirmed by the church leadership, and ordained to the task of leadership. To them are committed the responsibilities of being examples to the flock, of giving the church direction, teaching the people, leading the congregation. Scripture implies that anyone at a lower level of leadership should be under the elders' authority because they share unique responsibilities and positions in the church. <clears throat> elders are worthy of great respect. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13 and Hebrews 2. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. In other words, the congregation is spiritually accountable to the elder and the elder is accountable to God. The congregation should submit to the elder's leadership and let the elder be concerned with their own accountability before the Lord. And if the congregation is submissive and obedient, the elders will be able to lead them with joy and not be grieved, which is ultimately unprofitable to everyone. Now this doesn't mean that if an elder sins openly, his sin is to be ignored, 1 Timothy 5, 19-21. He, he must be followed. An accusation of sin against an elder is not to be received lightly. Nor is it to be overlooked. Elders are not are to be disciplined for sin in any in the same way any other church member would be. In no way are they to receive preferential treatment. The testimony of the church is most vital in the life of the elders. 
it's sad to say that many churches have lost their witness because they did not deal with an elder that fell into sin in a biblical way. They overlooked the sin. And I know of many situations when there have been private meetings to pay the pastor simply to disappear. If they ignore the biblical mandate of holiness, the church will suffer the consequences. Equally, if the church is not submissive to the leadership God has ordained, its testimony will suffer. Its effectiveness will diminish. Its priorities will be unbalanced. And ultimately, its Savior as salt of the earth will be lost. In closing, let me emphasize the work of the elder that I just referred to in that last paragraph. Of being holy and leading the church to be holy. Now, this is speaking of what? Well, it's speaking of two kinds of holiness, positional and progressive. And you may know that today is what is called Reformation Sunday because it's the Sunday before Reformation, which happens on October the 31st. Well, the Reformation addresses positional and progressive holiness. That is to say that through being united to Christ in faith, we possess a definite status of holiness. We are holy because Christ is our head and He is holy. And that speaks of our justification, that if we are in Christ, we have been justified. And this is the responsibility of a pastor elder is to preach justification by faith and faith alone. Last week, Dirk and I heard a testimony of a lady who shared about having an abortion when she was 15 years old. And the sad thing was that for 16 years, she was guilt-ridden. And she finally came to realize, after 16 years, that all of her sins were forgiven in Christ, remembered no more, cast in the depth of the sea, as far as the east is from the west. Now what disturbed me is that this lady, who had been very active, in church after she gave birth to her second child went 16 years being filled with guilt. And I thought to myself, what in the world was being taught in the church that she was at? How in the world should, could she go 16 years not understanding that in Christ all of your sins are forgiven, that your sins are no longer held against you. Now, I often preach that if you are in Christ, that you have received the righteousness of Christ. 
And I emphasize what that means. What He has done for us, that He has earned righteousness by His active obedience, that He kept the law completely, fully, and that that righteousness that Christ earned for us in His life at salvation is given to us. And therefore, when God looks upon us as a Christian, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He looks upon us as though we are completely holy. And I don't understand how that lady had not been taught that. But also we know of the passive obedience of Christ. That Christ paid the debt on the cross. That He took every single sin that we had committed and He paid that debt there at Calvary. He suffered and He died in our stead. He took our place. We should have been on the cross, but He took our place on the cross and paid for every single sin, even the sin of someone who commits abortion, which is a great sin. But I don't care how great the sin is, Christ is greater. And He has paid for the greatest sins that we commit. And if we are in Christ, then therefore all of our sins have been paid for by His active and passive obedience. And what is even more exciting is the fact that when God looks upon us, He looks upon us not only that our sins are forgiven, but He looks upon us as though we have never sinned. Now folks, that's amazing grace. That's what that lady should have understood earlier in her life, that when God looked upon her, when she had been forgiven, when she was saved, God looked upon her as though she had never committed that abortion. That she was completely forgiven to set her free to where she would not have gone through her life for 16 years thinking about committing suicide. She said she was driving down the road one day and she saw a tree and she thought to herself, you know what, I could take this van and drive it right into the tree and everybody would think I merely had an accident. She was contemplating taking her life because she did not understand Christ's justification and Christ's righteousness that has been given to us. I pray that everyone in this room understands that. That God opens your mind and opens up your spiritual knowledge to be under, able to understand what Christ has done for us who are in Christ. Now, if you're not in Christ... You have not experienced what we're talking about. You have not experienced that all of your sins, your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins are forgiven by Christ. Paid for. Not until you experience Him. Not until you cry out to Him in repentance and faith are you justified to where you become sanctified. See, if you're justified, and that's taken place, then sanctification will occur. That means that there'll be desire. That there will be a desire because you have a new heart. A desire 
to pursue holiness, a desire to be obedient to God's Word, a desire to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That doesn't come just naturally. That comes because God's Spirit puts that into your heart. And when God's Spirit puts that into your heart, then your life is radically changed. And you realize that you are a child of God. That you have been adopted into His family. And that you have been joined into His family, His local church. To where the pastor of that local church will be your overseer, will be your shepherd, will be your bishop, will be one who seeks to care for you and and love you. And sometimes he has to say some hard things to you. Sometimes he has to rebuke. I don't enjoy rebuking people, folks. But that's my task. There's times I have to look in your eyes and I have to say, you know that you have sinned. And you need to repent. Of course, I can't bring about the repentance. The Spirit of God has to do that. But that's my responsibility. And I cannot back away from that responsibility because one day I will have to stand before a holy God and give an account Therefore, if I know that someone is living in sin or practicing sin, it's my responsibility to go and speak to them, speak to them in love and truth and call them to repentance. See, you can't pay me enough money to do that. I do that because God has called me. God has set me apart. And that's the kind of man that I want to follow me. A man that would even be more dedicated than I've been. More committed to the truth. Because I care about you and I love you as a pastor. And I want to see God use us. That's the reason why I want Him to come along and be a co-pastor. That we can work together. And then eventually when I'm dead and gone. That He can also have someone alongside of Him. That's how God's church functions. And that's a biblical church. And I pray that that's the kind of church that you want and that you will be serious about these things that we've talked about and that you will pray for God to bring us the right man to be here at Grace Baptist Church. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your church that you have ordained your church, that you have founded your church, that you are growing your church, that you are using your church to bring honor and glory to your name. We thank you, Father, for this local church called Grace Baptist Church. And Father, how we pray that you would lead us to the right man that you would have to come alongside and eventually, Father, be the primary teacher, preacher. We know that you have the right man for us. And we pray, Father, that we would be submissive to what your will is. We thank you, Father, that you have blessed this church in so many ways over the 23 plus years with godly 
elders. We pray that you would continue to do so. We thank you for the godly deacons that you've given us. We pray, Father, that we would function in the manner that's pleasing to you. We also thank you, Father, for the great salvation that we can have in Christ. And I pray, Father, that there's no one here this morning that does not understand justification and sanctification. Oh, Father, open up minds to receive these truths, to understand how great a salvation is, is, to know that we have been forgiven, forgiven of all of our sins if we are in Christ. And I pray, Father, for those who have not experienced that, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would cry out in true repentance and saving faith to Him, to know Him as Lord and Savior, so that they might live for Him. And this we pray in Christ's name and for